Welcome to the Nonlinear Library, where we use text-to-speech software to convert the best writing from the rationalist and EA communities into audio. This is No-Nonsense Meta-Ethics, Part 4 Pluralistic Moral Reductionism, published by Lou Prague. Part of the sequence No-Nonsense Meta-Ethics. Disputes over the definition of morality are disputes over words which raise no really significant issues. Of course, lack of clarity about the meaning of words is an important source of error. My complaint is that what should be regarded as something to be got out of the way in the introduction to a work of moral philosophy has become the subject matter of almost the whole of moral philosophy. Peter Singer. If a tree falls in the forest, and no one hears it, does it make a sound? If by sound you mean acoustic vibrations in the air, the answer is yes. But if by sound you mean an auditory experience in the brain, the answer is no. We might call this straightforward solution pluralistic sound reductionism. If people use the word sound to mean different things, and people have different intuitions about the meaning of the word sound, then we needn't endlessly debate which definition is correct apostrophe. One, we can be pluralists about the meanings of sound. To facilitate communication, we can taboo and reduce we can replace the symbol with the substance and talk about facts and anticipations, not definitions. We can avoid using the word sound and instead talk about acoustic vibrations or auditory brain experiences. Still, some definitions can be wrong. Alex if a tree falls in the forest, and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Austere meta-acousticists tell me what you mean by sound, and I will tell you the answer. Alex by sound I mean acoustic messenger fairies flying through the ether. Austere meta-acousticists there's no such thing. Now, if you had asked me about this other definition of sound. There are other ways for words to be wrong, too. But once we admit to multiple potentially useful reductions of sound, it is not hard to see how we could admit to multiple useful reductions of moral terms. Many moral reductionisms. Moral terms are used in a greater variety of ways than sound terms are. There is little hope of arriving at the one true theory of morality by analyzing common usage or by triangulating from the platitudes of folk moral discourse. But we can use stipulation, and we can taboo and reduce. We can use pluralistic moral reduction as Vierkant meter, for austere metaethics, not for empathic metaethics. Example number one. Neuroscientist Sam Harris which is better. Religious totalitarianism or the Northern European welfare state? Austere meta-ethicist what do you mean by better? Harris by better I mean that which tends to maximize the well-being of conscious creatures. Austere meta-ethicist assuming we have similar reductions of well-being and conscious creatures in mind, the evidence I know of suggests that the Northern European welfare state is more likely to maximize the well-being of conscious creatures than religious totalitarianism. Example number two. Philosopher Peter Railton is capitalism the best economic system? Austere meta-ethicist what do you mean by best? Railton by best I mean would be approved of by an ideally instrumentally rational and fully informed agent considering the question how best to maximize the amount of non-moral goodness, from a social point of view in which the interests of all potentially affected individuals are counted equally. Austere meta-ethicist assuming we agree on the meaning of ideally instrumentally rational and fully informed an agent and non-moral goodness and a few other things, the evidence I know of suggests that capitalism would not be approved of by an ideally instrumentally rational and fully informed agent considering the question how best to maximize the amount of non-moral goodness, from a social point of view in which the interests of all potentially affected individuals were counted equally. Example number three. Theologian Bill Craig ought we to give 50% of our income to efficient charities? Austere meta-ethicist what do you mean by ought? Craig by ought I mean approved of by an essentially just and loving God. Austere meta-ethicist your definition doesn't connect to reality. It's like talking about atom for atom indexical identity even though the world is made of configurations and amplitudes instead of Newtonian billiard balls. Gods don't exist. 
But before we get to empathic metaethics, let's examine the standard problems of metaethics using the framework of pluralistic moral reductionism. Cognitivism versus non-cognitivism. One standard debate in metaethics is cognitivism versus non-cognitivism. Alexander Miller explains. Consider a particular moral judgment, such as the judgment that murder is wrong. What sort of psychological state does this express? Some philosophers, called cognitivists, think that a moral judgment such as this expresses a belief. Beliefs can be true or false they are truth-apt, or apt to be assessed in terms of truth and falsity. So cognitivists think that moral judgments are capable of being true or false. On the other hand, non-cognitivists think that moral judgments express non-cognitive states such as emotions or desires. Desires and emotions are not truth-apt. So moral judgments are not capable of being true or false. Three. But why should we expect all people to use moral judgments like stealing is wrong to express the same thing? Question mark four. Some people who say stealing is wrong are really just trying to express emotions stealing? Yuck. Others use moral judgments like stealing is wrong to express commands don't steal. Still others use moral judgments like stealing is wrong to assert factual claims, such as stealing is against the will of God or stealing is a practice that usually adds pain rather than pleasure to the world. It may be interesting to study all such uses of moral discourse, but this post focuses on addressing cognitivists, who use moral judgments to assert factual claims. We ask are those claims true or false? What are their implications? Objective versus subjective morality. Is morality objective or subjective? It depends which moral reductionism you have in mind, and what you mean by objective and subjective. Here are some common five uses of the objective-subjective distinction in ethics. Moral facts are objective one if they are made true or false by mind-independent facts, otherwise they are subjective one. Moral facts are objective two if they are made true or false by facts independent of the opinions of sentient beings, otherwise they are subjective two. Moral facts are objective three if they are made true or false by facts independent of the opinions of humans, otherwise they are subjective three. Now, consider Harris' reduction of morality to facts about the well-being of conscious creatures. His theory of morality is objective 3 and objective 2, because facts about well-being are independent of anyone's opinion. Even if the Nazis had won World War II and brainwashed everybody to have the opinion that torturing Jews was moral, it would remain true that torturing Jews does not increase the average well-being of conscious creatures. But Harris' theory of morality is not objective 1, because facts about the well-being of conscious creatures are mind-dependent facts. Or, consider Craig's theory of morality in terms of divine approval. His theory doesn't connect to reality, but still is it objective or subjective? Craig's theory says that moral facts are objective three, because they don't depend on human opinion, God isn't human. But his theory doesn't say that morality is objective two or objective one, because for him, moral facts depend on the opinion of a sentient being God. A warning ambiguous terms like objective and subjective are attractors for sneaking in connotations. Craig himself provides an example. In his writings and public appearances, Craig insists that only God-based morality can be objective.6 What does he mean by objective? On a single page, 7 he uses objective to mean independent of people's opinions, objective 2, and also to mean independent of human opinion, objective 3. I'll assume he means that only God-based morality can be objective 3, because God-based morality is clearly not objective 2, Craig's God is a person, a sentient being. And yet, Craig says that we need God in order to have objective 3 morality as if this should be a big deal. But hold on. Even a moral code defined in terms of the preferences of Washer the chimpanzee is objective 3. So not only is Bill's claim that only God-based morality can be objective 3 false, because Harris' moral theory is also objective 3, 
but also it's trivially easy to come up with a moral theory that is objective in Craig's, apparent, sense of the term, that is, objective 3.8. Moreover, Harris' theory of morality is objective in a stronger sense than Craig's theory of morality is. Harris' theory is objective 3 and objective 2, while Craig's theory is merely objective 3. Whether he's doing it consciously or not, I wonder if Craig is using the word objective to try to sneak in connotations that don't actually apply to his claims once you pay attention to what Craig actually means by the word objective. If Craig told his audience that we need God for morality to be objective in the same sense that morality defined in terms of the preferences of a chimpanzee is objective, would this still still have his desired effect on his audience? I doubt it. Once you've stipulated your use of objective and subjective, it is often trivial to determine whether a given moral reductionism is objective or subjective. But what of it? What force should those words carry after you've tabooed them? Be careful not to sneak in connotations that don't belong. Relative versus absolute morality. Is morality relative or absolute? Again, it depends which moral reductionism you have in mind, and what you mean by relative and absolute. Again, we must be careful about sneaking in connotations. Moore's open question argument. He's an unmarried man, but is he a bachelor? This is a closed question. The answer is obviously yes. In contrast, said G. E. Moore, all questions of the type such and such as X, but is it good? are open questions. It feels like you can always ask, yes, but is it good? In this way, Moore resists the identification of morally good with any set of natural facts. This is Moore's open question argument. Because some moral reductionisms do identify good or right with a particular X, those reductionisms had better have an answer to Moore. The Yudkowskian response is to point out that when cognitivists use the term good, Their intuitive notion of good is captured by a massive logical function that can't be expressed in simple statements like maximize pleasure or act only in accordance with maxims you could wish to be a universal law without contradiction. Even if you think everything you want, or rather, want to want, can be realized by, say, maximizing the well-being of conscious creatures, you're wrong. Your values are more complex than that, and we can't see the structure of our values. That is why it feels like an open question remains no matter which simplistic identification of good equals x you choose. The problem is not that there is no way to identify good or right, as used intuitively, without tabooing, with a certain x the problem is that x is huge and complicated and we don't, yet, have access to its structure. But that's the response to more after writing a wrong question, that is, when doing empathic metaethics. When doing mere pluralistic moral reductionism, Moore's argument doesn't apply. If we taboo and reduce, then the question of dot but is it good, is out of place. The reply is yes it is, because I just told you that's what I mean to communicate when I use the word tool good for this discussion. I'm not here to debate definitions, I'm here to get something done 9. The is ought gap. This section rewritten for clarity. Many claim that you cannot infer an ought statement from a series of his statements. The objection comes from Hume, who said he was surprised whenever an argument made of is and is not proposition suddenly shifted to an ought or ought not claim without explanation.10. The solution is to make explicit the bridge from ought statements to his statements. Perhaps the arguer means something non-natural by ought, such as commanded by God or in accord with irreducible, non-natural facts about goodness, see more. If so, I would reject that premise of the argument, because I'm a reductionist. At this point, our discussion might need to shift to a debate over the merits of reductionism. Or perhaps by you ought to x the arguer means something fully natural, such as X is obligatory, by deontic logic, if you assume axiomatic imperatives Y and Z. Or X tends to maximize as reward signals in agents exhibiting multiple drafts consciousness, or, as Sam Harris more broadly puts it, X tends to maximize well-being in conscious creatures. 
or X is what a Bayes rational and Hubble volume omniscient agent would do if it was motivated to maximize the amount of non-moral goodness from a view in which the interests of all potentially affected individuals were counted equally, where non-moral goodness refers to what an agent would want if it were he to contemplate its present situation from a standpoint fully and vividly informed about itself and its circumstances, and entirely free of cognitive error or lapses of instrumental rationality, see Rilton's Metaethics. Or X maximizes the complicated function that can be computed by extrapolating, in a particular way, the motivations encoded by my brain, CCEV. Or, insert here whatever statement, if believed, would motivate one to do X, see Will Sawing. Or, the speaker may have in mind a common ought reductionism known as the hypothetical imperative. This is an ought of the kind if you desire to lose weight, then you ought to consume fewer calories than your burn. But usually, people leave off the implied statement, and simply say you should eat less and exercise more. A hypothetical imperative, as some use it, can be translated from ought to is in a straightforward way if you desire to lose weight, then you ought to consume fewer calories than you burn translates to the claim if you consume fewer calories than you burn, then you will, or are, caterus paribus, more likely to, fulfill your desire to lose weight 11. Or, the speaker may be using ought to communicate something only about other symbols, example Bayes rule, Leaving the bridge from ought to is to be built when the logical function represented by his use of ought is plugged into a theory that refers to the world. But one must not fall into the trap of thinking that a definition you've stipulated, aloud or in your head, for ought must match up to your intended meaning of ought, to which you don't have introspective access. In fact, I suspect it never does, which is why the conceptual analysis of ought language can go in circles for centuries, and why any stipulated meaning of ought is a fake utility function. To see clearly to our intuitive concept of ought, we'll have to try empathic metaethics, see below. But whatever our intended meaning of ought is, the same reasoning applies. Either our intended meaning of ought refers, eventually, to the world of math and physics, in which case the is-ought gap is bridged, or else it doesn't, in which case it fails to refer 12. Moral realism versus anti-realism. So, does all this mean that we can embrace moral realism, or does it doom us to moral anti-realism? Again, it depends on what you mean by realism and anti-realism. In a sense, pluralistic moral reductionism can be considered a robust form of moral realism, in the same way that pluralistic sound reductionism is a robust form of sound realism. Yes, there really is sound, and we can locate it in reality, either as vibrations in the air or as mental auditory experiences, however you are using the term. In the same way yes, there really is morality, and we can locate it in reality, either as a set of facts about the well-being of conscious creatures, or as a set of facts about what an ideally rational and perfectly informed agent would prefer, or as some other set of natural facts. But in another sense, pluralistic moral reductionism is anti-realist. It suggests that there is no one true theory of morality. We use moral terms in a variety of ways, and some of those ways refer to different sets of natural facts. And as a reductionist approach to morality, it might also leave no room for moral theories which say there are universally binding moral rules for which the universe, for example via a god, will hold us accountable. What matters are the facts, not whether labels like realism or anti-realism apply to morality. Toward empathic metaethics. But pluralistic moral reductionism satisfies only a would-be austere metaethicist, not an empathic metaethicist. Recall that when Alex asks how she can do what is right, the austere metaethicist replies. Tell me what you mean by right, and I will tell you what is the right thing to do. If by right you mean X, then Y is the right thing to do. If by right you mean P, then Z is the right thing to do. But if you can't tell me what you mean by right, then you have failed to ask a coherent question, and no one can answer an incoherent question. 
Alex may reply to the austere metaethicist. Okay, I'm not sure exactly what I mean by right. So how do I do what is right if I'm not sure what I mean by right? The austere metaethicist refuses to answer this question. The empathic metaethicist, however, is willing to go the extra mile. He says to Alex. You may not know what you mean by right. But let's not stop there. Here, let me come alongside you and help decode the cognitive algorithms that generated your question in the first place, and then we'll be able to answer your question. Then we can tell you what the right thing to do is. This may seem like too much work. Would we be motivated to decode the cognitive algorithms producing Albert and Barry's use of the word sound? Would we try to solve empathic metaacoustics? Probably not. We can simply taboo and reduce sound and then get some work done. But moral terms and value terms are about what we want. And unfortunately, we often don't know what we want. As such, we're unlikely to get what we really want if the world is re-engineered in accordance with our current best guess as to what we want. That's why we need to decode the cognitive algorithms that generate our questions about value and morality. So how can the empathic metaethicist answer Alex's question? We don't know the details yet. For example, we don't have a completed cognitive neuroscience. But we have some ideas, and we know of some open problems that may admit of progress once more people understand them. In the next few posts, we'll take our first look at empathic metaethics.13. Previous post conceptual analysis and moral theory. Notes. One some have objected that the conceptual analysis argued against in conceptual analysis and moral theory is not just a battle over definitions. But a definition is the formal statement of the meaning or significance of a word, phrase, etc., and a conceptual analysis is, usually a formal statement of the meaning or significance of a word, phrase, etc. in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions. The goal of a conceptual analysis is to arrive at a definition for a term that captures our intuitions about its meaning. The process is to bash our intuitions against others' intuitions until we converge upon a set of necessary and sufficient conditions that captures them all. But consider Barry and Albert's debate over the definition of sound. Why think Albert and Barry have the same concept in mind? Words mean slightly different things in different cultures, subcultures, and small communities. We develop different intuitions about their meaning based on divergent life experiences. Our intuitions differ from each other's due to the specifics of unconscious associative learning and attribution substitution heuristics. What is the point of bashing our intuitions about the meaning of terms against each other for thousands of pages, in the hopes that we'll converge on a precise set of necessary and sufficient conditions? Even if we can get Albert and Barry to agree, what happens when Susan wants to use the same term, but has slightly differing intuitions about its meaning? And, let's say we arrive at a messy set of six necessary and sufficient conditions for the intuitive meaning of the term. Is that going to be as useful for communication as one we consciously chose because it carved up things space well? I doubt it. The Yahoo's definition of planet is more useful than the folk intuition's definition of planet. Folk intuitions about planet evolved over thousands of years and different people have different intuitions which may not always converge. In 2006, the IAU used modern astronomical knowledge to carve up things space in a more useful and informed way than our intuitions do. A passage from Bertrand Russell, 1953, is appropriate. Russell said that many philosophers reminded him of the shopkeeper of whom I once asked the shortest way to Winchester. He called to a man in the back premises. Gentleman wants to know the shortest way to Winchester. Winchester? An unseen voice replied. I. Way to Winchester. I. Shortest way? I. To know. He wanted to get the nature of the question clear, but took no interest in answering it. This is exactly what modern philosophy does for the earnest seeker after truth. Is it surprising that young people turn to other studies? 
to compare also to the biologist species concept pluralism and the philosopher's art concept pluralism. See Uyer and Magnus, 2011. Also see causal pluralism, Godfrey Smith, 2009, Cartwright, 2007, theory concept pluralism, Magnus, 2009, and, especially, meta-ethical contextualism, Bjornsson and Finley, 2018, or meta-ethical pluralism or meta-ethical ambivalence, Joyce, 2011. Joyce quotes Lewis, 1989, who wrote that some concepts of value refer to things that really exist, and some concepts don't, and what you make of this situation is largely a matter of temperament. What to make of the situation is mainly a matter of temperament. You can bang the drum about how philosophy has uncovered a terrible secret there are no values or you can think it better for public safety to keep quiet and hope people will go on as before. Or you can declare that there are no values, but that nevertheless it is legitimate, and not just expedient, for us to carry on with value talk, since we can make it all go smoothly if we just give the name of value to claimants that don't quite deserve it. Or you can think it an empty question whether there are values say what you please, speak strictly or loosely. When it comes to deserving a name, there's better and worse but who's to say how good is good enough? Or you can think it clear that the imperfect deservers of the name are good enough, but only just, and say that although there are values we are still terribly wrong about them. Or you can calmly say that value, like simultaneity, is not quite as some of us sometimes thought. Myself, I prefer the calm and conservative responses. But as far as the analysis of value goes, they're all much of a muchness. Joyce concludes that, for example, the moral naturalist and the moral error theorist may agree with each other, when adopting each other's own language. Metaethical ambivalence begins with a kind of metamethical enlightenment. The moral naturalist espouses moral naturalism, but this espousal reflects a mature decision, by which I mean that the moral naturalist doesn't claim to have latched onto an incontrovertible realm of moral facts of which the skeptic is foolishly ignorant, but rather acknowledges that this moral naturalism has been achieved only via a non-mandatory piece of conceptual precisification. Likewise, the moral skeptic champions moral skepticism, but this too is a sophisticated verdict not the simple declaration that there are no moral values and that the naturalist is gullibly uncritical, but rather a decision that recognizes that this skepticism has been earned only by making certain non-obligatory but permissible conceptual clarifications. The enlightened moral naturalist doesn't merely, grudgingly, admit that the skeptic is warranted in his or her views, but is able to adopt the skeptical position in order to gain the insights that come from recognizing that we live in a world without values and the enlightened moral skeptic goes beyond, grudgingly, conceding that moral naturalism is reasonable, but is capable of assuming that perspective in order to gain whatever benefits come from enjoying epistemic access to a realm of moral facts. Thanks for listening. To help us out with the nonlinear library or to learn more, please visit nonlinear.org.